State Representative Kevin Windham made history in 2018 when he was elected as the youngest African-American to the Missouri House. And now the Hillsdale Democrat is trying to make his mark on the 2019 legislative session. Windham joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today, a longtime fan of the show. Apparently, whenever a new episode comes on, he like literally exclaims in the hall of the Capitol about how excited he is, our guest today is. Kevin Windham, state representative of Missouri's 85th House District. Welcome, first time uh, guest today. This is why you ran for office, right, to be on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you are the youngest African-American ever elected to the Missouri House, so there has to be a, an interesting backstory about how you got to this point as a state legislator. Well, I don't know how inter- interesting it is, but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. So, uh, born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, I was raised in a small municipality in the Normandy area, Hillsdale. And uh, when I was growing up, I went to a few different schools, but ended up graduating from McClure North High School because I know that's an important St. Louis question. Well, Joe, Joe Manis usually asks that question, <laughs> but I, 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 I'm not from St. Louis, so I don't really care as we much. We miss you, Joe. We, we do. We, we, she'll be back eventually, but, but continue. So uh, after graduating from McClure North High School, I went on to study corporate communications at Southeast Missouri State. Uh, well, I should rewind just a little bit. I, I went into college as a finance major, and then during uh, 2014, the Ferguson uprising uh, occurred, and I, I had a different outlook on life. I started thinking more about uh, how, how do I move both myself and my community forward. Uh, more so than just myself. So I changed my major to corporate communication and became engaged in student government and Black Student Union, uh, the President's Task Force on Diversity Education at the university. Uh, After college, or actually during college, I I participated in the Focus St. Louis Impact Fellows where I met a bunch of great executive leaders in in the region. From there, I uh, participated in the Neighborhood Leadership Fellows and worked for Senator McCaskill. Uh, in Washington, D.C. And what did you do for Senator McCaskill? So I was a staff assistant in uh, D.C. and St. Louis. The role changed a little bit when I came to St. Louis, but um, I was basically the guy that did everything that no one else wanted to do. So uh, after I came back to St. Louis, uh, I, I started looking inward and saying uh, and thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. So I determined to go ahead and run for office after a bunch of different conversations with mentors and, and the like. And uh, it was a, a tumultuous run. Uh, I think uh, it, it stayed clean during the campaign, but it was uh, still 
quite the campaign. I was just going to say, uh, you ran against, what, three other Democratic candidates? That's right. Including that's right. The, the closest one was Errol Bush, who I believe was the mayor of Northwoods. That's right. And he, he has been in local politics for a long time, happens to be Cory Bush's father. Right. Actually was a longtime ally of Congressman Lacey Clay. I assume that since his daughter was running against Lacey Clay, he wasn't he was probably more on your side than his side. Is that fair to say? Well, or did he not really care about your race that much? I won't say that he didn't care much about the race because it was a race that, I mean, his is it's within his district, right? So yeah. it had some influence on his constituents in the district. I don't know if those outside factors, those personal things really had much of a factor on on my race or on the the race for the 85th seat specifically mm-hmm. um but i i do think that within the race I, I was able to garner a significant amount of support whether that was uh other political folks or whether it was uh, organizations or uh, most importantly my neighbors right yeah well it was kind of a generational race similar to, we had Rachel Prouty on mm-hmm. and she ran against two uh, older candidates, one who had been in municipal office before and one who tried to get in municipal office before. Um, I think one of your candidates was kind of youngish, but mm-hmm. so it wasn't exactly the same. But was the fact that you're a fairly young political figure, like attractive to a lot of people and a lot of voters? Um, because in a race with four Democrats who have probably fairly similar views on issues, that could be a determining factor in how they vote. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think so. Um, I think the youth combined with the experience of so many of the candidates that have been running lately is is not only a plus, but I think that it's, it's something for uh, that constituents really look to these days. So uh, I, 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 even though it wasn't necessarily my politics wasn't necessarily my first choice, uh, it it came earlier in in my uh, career, and I was able to kind of uh, take take steps towards my eventual path in politics, uh, whether it was policy or whether it was just those leadership programs or diversity programs. That that experience eventually added up to uh, to the constituents of the district to make a, a good. Uh, public policy maker. So you've been a state house member for what, three, four months now? Three months. Time has flown by yes. since uh, the 2018 election cycle. What are your overall impressions of, of being in the Missouri House? I think um, this is my observation. Uh, the African American members of the House seem to be having some success in getting their bills heard, which we'll talk about in a bit. There's, you're still in the super minority, which means that it's not going to be super easy to pass everything you want. Um, but it does seem like at least your voices are being heard by Republican leadership. That's my observation. What, what, what's your first person observation? I think that, um, that the, the Black Caucus has shown some strength in, in, the, early, uh, in, in the early part of this legislature. Uh, the Speaker Elijah Har has, of, of course, shown the willingness to refer some bills to committee. But if you look at the the representation of African Americans in the Democratic Caucus leadership, uh, and it seems like it's an article about this nearly every year, but uh, the the Democratic leadership has the most African American members in history. Uh, I'm the first incoming 
freshmen to be in leadership. Uh, it's it's just we've kind of moved to I think a a point where it's more so about policy and making strong policy for the state of Missouri than it is about. I won't necessarily say <laughs> than it is about party, but uh, hopefully in the future it'd be more so about policy than it is about race when, when making policy. I, I don't want to like be a conspiratorial theorist or conspiracy theorist. I don't think conspiratorial <laughs> theorist is the right term. I'll allow it. Um, do you think that the speaker is engaging with the Black Caucus because he may need your votes on some controversial issues like charter schools or clean Missouri or something. He doesn't need your votes for clean Missouri, which right, is the right. state legislative redistricting, but he clearly would want it to have some Democratic votes as opposed to being a Republican thing. Is there any of that going into play there? Or do you think it's just you have good ideas and good ideas just win the day, basically? Well, of course, I, I, I wouldn't be able to say for sure, but I, I there could be some political gamesmanship there. Uh, there has been in the past. Uh, there usually is uh, amongst the, the the majority party, or even sometimes ma- the the Democratic caucus and uh, and the Black caucus. But at the end of the day, uh, I, I strongly believe that folks are in, whether in the Black caucus or whether in the Democratic caucus are going to vote with their district and vote with their conscience. One of the bills that has been heard involves the A plus schools program. Um, I want you to explain, first of all, what that program is for listeners that don't understand what it is and also what your legislation would do, because this does seem to have some bipartisan support. A Republican sponsored a very similar, if not identical bill. So uh, what does this bill do? What is the A-plus program and what are you trying to change? Absolutely. So House Bill 498, the the provisions, it modifies provisions to the A-plus program. The A-plus program is uh, in my opinion, marketed as free college uh, or free two years of, of community college. And it is actually not that for a lot of students. At least 2,500 students uh, do not receive what we, I'm using air quotes, what we call free college um, because it is what we call a last dollar program. So a last dollar program means that all non-loan sources of funding will pay for your school and then A-plus will kick in. So if you are a low-income student and you receive Pell Grants, your Pell Grant will likely take up all the costs of your uh, community college education before it even comes to A-plus. Now, some folks will say, well, that still sounds okay to me. It's still quote-unquote free college. However, uh, when, if a student decides to go to a four-year university after, the, after their community college education and, and uses a large amount of their Pell Grant funding, then they won't have that, f- amount of, that full amount of Pell Grant funding available to them. So in my opinion, uh, A-plus is inherently inequitable. And my, or House Bill 498, which uh, Representative Don Mayhew, a re- Republican from rural Missouri, filed the exact same bill we had the hearing together, it would make A-plus a first dollar program. So if you're promised A-plus and you complete all the requirements for A-plus, you receive those A-plus dollars before you receive any Pell Grant or federal aid. Do you know how much an average A-plus uh, scholarship is? Is it like $2,000, $3,000 or something like that? Yes. Okay. Yes. So the idea is that if, it, if you p- use that money first, then you could potentially not use as much Pell Grants toward the community college and have some left over for the four-year college. Is that basically what you're trying to do here? That's right. Um, 
has there been any like major opposition to the idea like it seems like a pretty reasonable idea on its face but why hasn't this been done many years ago well i i can't tell you why it hasn't been done many years ago but i can tell you that some of the opposition to it uh, surprisingly is the missouri community college association mm. and um one of the reasons that not only the community college association but some of the opponents of the bill is the fiscal note but in my opinion uh the fiscal note which is about uh 12 million dollars just shows the true cost of a plus um the the recipients of a plus uh the average income for those students or the average household income is about $85,000 and over 30% of the recipients of the a plus scholarship uh, have a, a household income of over $100,000. So uh, I think that it's many different ways to try to look at the program and, and right-size it or uh, revamp it, whatever whatever words you want to use. But I think that we, we have to look at ourselves as a state and think, who, who are we helping and who are we not helping with, with a lot of our aid programs? Has this been voted on in committee yet, or did you just have a hearing? It has not been voted on. It's, been, it's had a public hearing, but uh, we haven't had executive session yet. A- any guesses on how it'll do and whether it'll make it to the floor, or whether you may just have to attach it as an amendment to another bill or something like that? Like, wh- where does it go from here? Uh, honestly, I, I don't want to make any guesses. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to give away your legislative strategy on a podcast, basically. Well, I won't say that. Uh, it's just me and you talking in a room, right? <laughs> but uh, I, I'll say that this one is up in the air. I think that a lot of folks agree that it's good good policy. But uh, I think that one of the quickest ways to kill a bill in Missouri is talking about the fiscal note. Uh, okay. Well, there's another <laughs> before we we pressed record. There was another bill that went through a committee that you're on, the like local elections and elected officials committee, dealing with. I guess voting and and felonies is that is if I'm not mistaken this isn't I don't is this, this I don't think this is a bill that you've sponsored I think State Representative Bruce Franks Jr. has sponsored it but it's something that has piqued your interest uh, explain what it does and how it was received in that committee absolutely so I am honored to serve on the elections and elected officials uh, committee and we heard a bill by Representative Franks and it it deals with. Uh, probation and parole and voting rights. So uh, Representative Frank's bill would restore voting rights while folks are on probation and parole. Uh, and it really piqued my attention, not only because I had a, a almost heart-wrenching, or it was a heart-wrenching story on the campaign trail where I knocked on a person's door and, they, and we, we had a, a great conversation about politics and then they told me that they couldn't vote because they were on probation even though their kids were uh, going to the school district and even though they were uh, involved in in local politics. Uh, So uh, that would restore folks voting rights while they're on probation and parole. And uh, another reason it especially caught my attention is because I recently heard about the story of a woman named Crystal Mason in Texas that had been sentenced to five years for voting while she was on probation. in which uh, she said it was a mistake. So uh, I, I think that's especially important, especially when we're talking about getting more folks involved in the political process. You know, one of the things that has been interesting to watch as somebody who followed the post-policy push after Ferguson is I think Republicans now are more amenable to, quote-unquote, criminal justice reform mm-hmm. as they were in 2015, mm-hmm. where all they wanted to do was basically restrict the amount of fine revenue that municipalities could get and nothing else. Mm-hmm. 
Is this something that you think your Republican colleagues could get behind? Because there does seem to be this new wave within the conservative libertarian movement of restorative justice and giving people second chances. Um, what what was kind of the reaction from some of the Republicans on the committee who, who run the show, obviously? I, I think that folks have been a lot more open to, like you said, a lot more of these criminal justice reform ideas. I think that there's a tendency to, uh, if you will, water the ideas down. Uh, however, I, I think that folks are, are generally open to criminal justice reform, whether it be voting rights or whether it be um, letting folks out of prison early or whether it be uh, looking at sentencing guidelines because uh, Governor Parsons said it best, he's not interested in building a new prison. And I, I think that that's something that the Democratic Party has, has championed for a long time, being criminal justice reform. I'm just glad that um, the Republicans are starting to uh, starting to hear the state of Missouri out. My understanding is that I guess traditionally Republicans have not been for this nationally because they I guess they fear if a lot of uh, people get their voting rights back, they're going to vote for Democratic candidates and hurt Republicans. I don't know if that's necessarily true. There could be people on probation who are hardcore Republicans just as they're hardcore Democrats. But I imagine that does come into play a little bit among some of your colleagues, or, may, or maybe not. What, what, what's, your, what's your feeling on that? I hope not. Um, I, Chairman Shaw, the chair of the Elections Committee, uh, on within our first, um, even I believe before our first meeting, said that he wanted to keep this, this committee completely nonpartisan. I think that we've accomplished that for the most part. I think you'd be surprised at some of the bills that uh, even Republicans have, have sponsored in in that committee. So Representative uh, Peggy McGaw sponsored a bill that would allow for a no excuse absentee voting. So I think that I hope that overall good ideas are just winning the day, good policies winning the day. Well, let's talk about an issue that uh, transfixed the Missouri House. I don't know if it was earlier this month or late last month. It's Representative Nick Shore's legislation that would substantially restrict abortion in Missouri. Um, there's a lot of things going on in this bill. The, the main thing is after a heartbeat or brain activity are detected, um, you, after like six to eight weeks, abortion would be banned, except in the case of medical emergency. There's no exception for rape or incest. Mm -hmm. um, there are various <coughs> tiers that occur in case that is declared unconstitutional. There's also like two-parent uh, notification um, and a whole other things that we talked about extensively on Representative Shorer's podcast. Um, this, I, I wasn't there, but it seemed like this was a very tough debate for not only Missouri Democrats, but for everybody. Um, because I've been following abortion rights policy for a long time. I've never seen legislation like this. This is probably the most restrictive abortion legislation bill I've ever seen come through Missouri, especially passed a chamber. Um, and if it ends up passing and being signed into law, this is going to make national news. So with that as a wind-up, what was your impressions of this legislation and being part of this debate? You, you know, Jason, even when you, you explain all of that right on top of each, of each other, it still takes my breath away. Um, of the, This is the first time Representative Walker said it on the floor. This is the first time that this, uh, I believe her word was draconian, set of laws has all been uh, in place at one time in one state, and it's it's really no way to to know what's going to happen uh, with the the folks in a great state of Missouri when when this is all implemented. 
Uh, I don't. I don't pretend to be an expert on the issue in any way, uh, way, shape, form, or fashion. Um, however, I did stand up and speak briefly on the floor. I just told the story of of uh, my mother when she um, was a young teenage uh, single mother, and and how she had to to deal with the uh, uh, again to use this word heart wrenching uh, decision. I'm sure. Uh, and she, I, I trust, I trusted her, and, and and I think that we as legislators should trust women in the state of Missouri to make decisions for themselves. I think that a lot of the amendments that were added to the bill, whether it be two-parent notification, or whether it be the tiered laws, if Roe versus Wade is ever overturned, uh, I think that it's it's just it was it. If you go back and look at the floor debate. Uh, there were huge issues with not only the bill, but every amendment that was added. And, I mean, <laughs> this is one of the issues where the, where the, the voice vote was clear. Uh, the Missouri House um, feels that it is within our rights to make decisions for Missouri's women. This is probably one of the issues where, as a Missouri Democrat, like your influence is I don't want to say non-existent, but you probably mm-hmm. do feel pretty powerless mm-hmm. because every I don't think that there's been a Republican who supports abortion rights elected to the Missouri legislature since 2006. And now there's 115, 116 uh, Republicans and there were three Democrats that ended up voting. So is your feeling as a member of the House as a way to combat this just by speaking up and hoping the Senate uh, Democrats are strong enough to filibuster this? Like, I'm just trying to ask you, like, what is your strategy when you're so outnumbered on this issue and it seems pretty hopeless on its face? Yeah, so I, I, that's our job in the House as is, is Missouri Democrats right now is just to, to speak our piece and, and to say it as loud as we can and, and try to get the message to as many folks as we can. Um, the Senate has a little bit more power or a lot more power in terms of stopping things that are um, – I think that a lot of things to go through the House are bad, but we we as House Democrats try to make things less bad and try to speak out on things and try to convince our colleagues on the other side of the aisle why we think they're bad and tell our constituents and the constituents of the state of Missouri why they're bad. So I'm going to play a couple of clips right now. One of the most notable things about this bill is there is no exception for rape or incest. And I asked Representative Nick Shore uh, last week, about that, this is what he had to say on our show. Allowing somebody to terminate the pregnancy and kill a child at 40 weeks or 38 weeks, uh, regardless of you know that that child's value to to the parent, that child's value uh, to to the nation or to to everyone in general is the same, whether they've been conceived out of wedlock, out of uh, any any other uh, form. But you know th- that that's what I try to speak with Representative Butts about. Is look, this would not prevent number one would not prevent anybody from getting the immediate uh, care that they need. And if for some reason they don't uh, and you're past that eight week mark or the 14 week mark, uh, there is an exception in there for medical emergencies. And as the courts have defined in other um, in other cases and in other states, the medical emergency exception could also be linked to whether somebody's suicidal or has um, mental health emergency. So it's not just physical health. It could be mental health of the mother as well, but me not being a doctor, I'm not one uh, to put those type of findings, those medical emergencies, what they would be defined as, uh, I think physicians would have to take that on on a case by case basis. Um, 
But, you know, like like I said, in, in stark contrast to what's happening in New York and Virginia and New Mexico, um, you know, we we want to stand for life. We want to stand for the life of the unborn. You probably heard that argument a lot on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make of Representative Shore's comments and the, the rationale for not having a rape or incest uh, exemption? So I, I won't attack Representative Shore's comments, but what, what I will say is that I have never... Uh, been raped, and I don't pers- I No one has personally ex- shared their experience that I know of of being raped with me. However, I can imagine that that is a a a experience that no one would would ever wish on their worst enemy. So, with 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 that being said, a pregnancy would only compound the amount of stress that a person would be going through and to expect them to make a decision early on if they would want to uh, keep or or want to continue a pregnancy to potentially bring a life into this world or if they would want to uh, end that, that pregnancy. That's, those are just too many decisions that I as a man would never be or faced with to even make a decision on. And again, that's why I, I just trust women to make their own decisions, uh, especially when they're healthcare decisions. I asked Governor Mike Parson last week if he, uh, I, I assume he hasn't read the bill line by line, but if there was anything that he would want to change in the bill, including putting a rape or incest exemption, this is what he had to say. Yeah, I, you know what? I think that's a, a work in progress. We all know how the legislative process works. You know, we want to see how this gets through the legislature, how it gets to the Senate. But, you know, when it gets to the governor's office, we're going to take a look and see what's in there. But but the main thing is we're trying to protect the unborn and, and be pro-life in this state. And I think we're setting an example by doing this. So what message would you have to send to the governor who has sent out tweets saying he supports what the House does? He's running, presumably running for another full term next year. And this issue could be something that he showcases to voters. What What message would you have to him as he has to decide whether to sign or veto this bill if it passes the Senate. You know, that's a difficult question for me, Jason, uh, especially kind of going back to one of your earlier questions when you when you spoke about the role of House Democrats. Really, we can just speak out as much as we can about the issues um, that we think that we have with the bill. But most of the time, it makes little to no difference. So I, I would just encourage the the governor to read the bill um, and to speak with victims, um, to speak with folks who are uh, pro-choice advocates and to to make his decision accordingly. And I encourage the the people of the great state of Missouri to uh, pay close attention to the decision of not only the governor, but the House and the Senate. Let's talk about another issue that's affecting your neck of the woods in particular, the potential merger between St. Louis and St. Louis County. Now, This is an issue that is kind of bubbling up kind of away from the legislature, but the legislature is obviously taking notice of it. Um, In particular, there is a lot of angst, I think, on both sides of the political aisle about the fact that the group pushing the city-county merger, known as Better Together, is taking this to statewide voters as opposed to just in the city and the county. And there have been several legislators who have put forth like a competing constitutional amendment saying, 
you can't merge the city or the county unless it's a, a local vote, essentially. There's different variations, but that's basically the crux of this. The reason I'm asking you about it is I know from doing a lot of research and from talking a lot of uh, political leaders where you represent, which is primarily African-American, that there's been decades-long opposition to a city-county merger because there's a fear that it's going to dilute African-American political representation. And as uh, a relative newcomer to politics, but probably somebody who is talking with these political leaders often, I'm interested to hear your perspective on uh, the concept of a city-county merger in this particular plan and, and what, what, how your constituents are reacting to it. So my constituents are overall opposed to the Better Together plan. I will say that I have some constituents that are open to um, consolidating different municipalities within the 85th district, um, a vote to uh, to unincorporate, and I believe it was... Um, I think it was two. You're talking about Uplands Park. Yes, I yes. think that was Uplands two. Park was, I think that was 2013. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, just a few years ago, only failed by a few votes. It, so, it was very close. So, so folks are paying attention to the issue. Um, overall, again, it, folks are against better together. I don't know any elected officials, with the exception of any or many uh, exception uh, or proponents of the plan, with the exception of. Uh, Mayor Cruson and, and County Executive Stanger. Uh, I'm I'm opposed to many things in the actual plan. I think the the devil's in the details if it will actually uh, dilute representation in legislative bodies. However, in executive positions, I think it's all all but guaranteed in the sense of uh, there's. 20 mayors in the 85th district. You will essentially. Uh, I, I will. I will use this quote loosely someone in my uh, uh, a person that is in local government in my di in in the 85th district actually said you'll essentially make uh the mayors of these municipalities park supervisors and and trash collectors and i just want to explain to our listeners what that means because under this plan cities lose a lot of power to do a lot of things they can't have a police department they can't have a municipal court they can't like they can only tax very specific things, mm -hmm. and then a lot of the tax that is done essentially for more general governmental operations or for police or whatever get directed to the metro city. I, I do want to play devil's advocate though because one of the main uh, selling points of this from the Better Together is the fact that they will be merging municipal courts and police departments, mm -hmm. and I think you know this from growing up in. Mid is it basically mid county? Is that what you call it? I don't want to call it North County because I know people get persnickety about that. So I grew up calling it North County, but I, historically it's been mid county, yeah. and I, I yeah, you know, my point. <laughs> my point is, there's some police departments in in your district that have bad reputations for particularly ticketing African American residents, even though mm -hmm. they're African American led governments. And the argument is that consolidating the municipal courts and police departments may lead to more high quality police protection for everybody. What what's your thought on that? Yeah, so I think that that's also one of the recommendations of the Ferguson Commission report, um, which which I think is sneaky. And there's there's I mean th there's a lot to be said about the th the problems not only in in the the region uh, that I represent the the 85th district, but in the region overall, right? Um, but to to have a uh, 
bad plan that addresses some problems is I, personally I don't think that that's because this isn't just a plan for the next few years this is a plan for the governance of the St. Louis region for here on out until we come up with a new plan right mm -hmm. so I don't think that just correcting one problem even though it may be a big problem in our region just correcting one problem throwing a, a entire system bad form of government at it is is not the 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 right approach mm -hmm. well i want to get back to the uh african-american representation mm -hmm. part a little bit and kind of flesh it out a little bit more sure. so the proponents of better together are saying that since there's a larger council of 33 people mm -hmm. then you would be able to elect more african-americans to that council uh through districts presumably in north and parts of south st louis as well as north and mid county which I think is certainly possible. Right now, the county council only has two members. I, I, don't, I don't know how the lines are going to be drawn, but I could right. see 10 members, maybe 12. Um, but what you were kind of getting at, and if you look at other cities that have merged, like Indianapolis, um, Nashville, and Louisville, merged city and county governments, not a single one of them has ever elected a black mayor. So they also say, like, well, you elected, you know, St. Louis County elected Wesley Bell, and the county's only, you know, 25% black. So that's kind of more of an observation than a question. But it, I think that the issue is the executive leadership of this new city would, by the percentage of white versus African-American, likely be a white person as opposed to an African-American, and they would hold a lot of the power. I would imagine that's part of your concern. That's a part of it. But I think that even when you speak about the, the legislative branch of this um, proposed um, metro city. Uh, it all. It, I don't. I don't want to relitigate clean Missouri, but it all goes back to the devil. Isn't is in the details and how you draw the lines. Uh, we could have ten to twelve members on on the uh, the in the legislative branch of this new government. But if the proportions are about the same uh, than that they are now, then does that really? Uh, do as much good if the Black Caucus in the new form of government is essentially the same in, that it is in the county or even smaller than it is in the city right now, then yeah. did we really move the scales of equity any, forward any? Well, you could also form a coalition with the Republican members similar to what's going on in the county council, right. but let, let's not go there. <laughs> but let's talk about practicality, like what legislators who don't like this can actually do. Mm -hmm. Because you know, Representative Lakeisha Bosley has put forward a constitutional amendment, as I just mentioned, requiring this to be a local vote. I think there's been others who have, too. But my feeling is that there are a lot of people in Republican leadership that like this idea. Um, I don't want to say that they like this idea only because Rex Singfeld is probably funding it. They may actually like it because they like the idea of consolidation. But let's be honest, Rex Singfeld is a major donor to Republican politics and to some Democratic politics as well. So the reason I mention all this is, does this kind of create kind of a pessimistic path to actually put a competing constitutional amendment? And it just may be up to people like yourself to just try to vote it down in 2020 if it makes the ballot. What, what's your thoughts on that? So I think that we have to address uh, the Better Together proposal from a number of different angles. I think that Representative Bosley's uh, uh, House Joint Resolution is uh, a good avenue. I've co-signed, co-sponsored uh, her constitutional or her proposed constitutional amendment. Uh, I, I I support the uh, 
the municipal league in their pursuit of creating a board of freeholders uh, uh, process, even though uh, we know there's some some flaws in that plan. Well, like the fact that Stinger and Cruson appoint most of the members and yeah. they could just torpedo what it, they could just torpedo that process to make sure there's not a competing plan. Yeah. Like, but but continue. Yeah. So um, I, I think that uh, all of these approaches are necessary. And I also think that um, that there's a, a number of, of approaches that we have yet to uh, to see. We'll have to see into the future. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How would people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Oh, Jason, I am a long-time listener, and I'm supposed to know my Twitter handle, but I don't. It's I Wyndham 85 That's right. Because I checked beforehand. That's, thank you, Jason. You're, you're very welcome. Okay, since you are a long-time listener, I you know— I think that my millennial card just got revoked there oh as well. Oh, my gosh. Well, Twitter is kind of terrible anyway, so uh, we'll let that slide. As a long-time listener of the show, you know that we have different outro music every week, and you told me before the show that you had a suggestion. Your, your colleague, Representative Rachel Prouty, had a— a very seminal song by Juvenile <laughs> that she picked. Um, yes. uh, what, is, what is the song you want me to play you out to? So I am prepared for this question, Jason, and it is The Spinners. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Mm-hmm.